All right. Good morning. Yeah. Good morning. Oh, we're doing that. Good morning. Okay. Um, listen, uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts in the New Testament. This morning, we're going to be in chapter 11, looking at verses 1 through 18. So if you could turn in your Bible uh, to Acts chapter 11, the title of this sermon, our message this morning is From Judging to Joyful. From Judging to Joyful. So, so just before we dive in, um, God has just really been at work in our church this past week. Uh, it's just really encouraging, and I want to mention a few things to you. Um, there was a, a baby born on Sunday, or it might have been Monday morning uh, last week, and I'm pretty sure the mom went into labor here at church and, you know, went to the hospital. Amazing. And then Bo is here. The little baby, uh, Bo Bodenheimer, is here. So that's pretty impressive. Let me just give you parents some, some credit for that. And, you know, we really just praise the Lord for the gift of, of new life. And I also, and just, th- so just think about this and think about how this is uh, just what God does in his church, in a church family. Uh, in the same week, you know, I get a text uh, from a man uh, in our church uh, who's been battling leukemia, and the text says, hematologist says zero cancer cells per one million cells in my blood. And so we've been praying, you know, we've been praying and just we, we praise the Lord. We praise the Lord for that answer to prayer. And, you know, just God is at work. And then also this past uh, weekend, really yesterday, people graduated from, from college, from NC State and from uh, Peace College. And we have people who are part of this church family that finished something really significant in graduating. I know we had people getting their PhDs, and so some doctors are in the house. And we had people finishing their undergrad. And, you know, it's, it's not only significant at any time uh, to graduate uh, from college, but to do it you know, with a little speed bump of a global pandemic, you know, during your time, give you a lot of credit for that. So praise God for that and, and good job. Um, so yeah, God is at work. And last week's message was titled God at Work. And we were looking last week at Peter, who was called by God to go to a Gentile's house. His name was Cornelius. This is in Acts chapter 10. And really what, what, what transpired in the passage last Sunday was the first Gentile coming to faith in Christ. The first time on record in the Bible that a non-Jewish person became a Christian. It was very significant. And so that was chapter 10. And now this morning in chapter 11, we're going to look at, it's actually kind of like the same story again, told from a different perspective. Okay, last week was was the telling of the event. This is what happened. And then this morning in Acts chapter 11, verse 1 through 18, Peter is going to be criticized by the Jewish Christians for his having fellowship with Gentiles because they don't understand what happened yet. And Peter's going to retell the story. And the focus of his retelling the same story is is to, to help us see the meaning of what happened, the significance of what happened. So event that happened last week, now this week, the profound and deep significance of what happened for our lives. And you know, sometimes this happens in the Bible, you know, like chapter 10 was the story, and chapter 11, same story, 
Welcome to the Bible. The repetition happens when something's really important. In fact, right now is the NBA playoffs. And, you know, it's, it's a hard time of year in, in my family because not everybody's into these games that way I am. And I get asked, wait, didn't these two teams just play yesterday? And I'm like, yeah, they did. Like, well, why are they playing again? It's a seven-game series. It's a seven-game series. That's it? And No, then it's the next seven-game series. It just keeps on going. Repetition, it's amazing. And each game's just a little different. And so all we're going to do here in Acts is look at this story twice. So this morning, we're seeing this story again told for a different purpose. And so Acts 11, 1 through 18, I'm going to read it to you now. Um, and uh, let's just do that and then pray. And then we're going to dive in. So Acts 11. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived from the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers who also accompanied me We entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then... God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I to stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Lord, we thank you this morning for this passage of Scripture, and Lord, we want to get everything from it. So God, we just pray that You, Lord, would open our minds. Help us, Lord, to focus on the words, the phrases, the sentences. God, to to really receive from You truth that we need, that our minds and hearts might be changed to better reflect Your wisdom and Your ways. God, we thank you for the ways that you are at work in the lives of your people. Lord, for the graduations, for the healings. Lord, for the new life being born into this world. God, we praise you, Lord. 
And we ask you to bless us and bless this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. From judging to joyful. So as I just read this passage uh, to you, I believe you would have noticed that in the beginning of the passage, these uh, people are critical of what Peter has done. He went and had fellowship with Gentiles. And they're very critical of it. And so really the passage breaks down into three points. I mean, the first point really from verses 1 to 3 is the criticism. And we'll look at it. The second point from verses 4 to 17 is Peter responding and and really responding to them and explaining his actions. And his point in purpose really is just to show them, hey, God did this. This was God's idea, not mine, not Peter's idea. And then we'll see the results of it in verse 18. So really, it breaks down nicely into three passages. And I I want you to see the, the, the process, the journey that happens in these 18 verses. I really want you to see it. Because the people who are critical at the beginning are celebrating at the end. The people who are prejudiced at the beginning are praising at the end. The people who were in Peter's face grumbling at the beginning are glorifying at the end. And that's why I chose the title from judging to joyful. Because the people at the beginning that were judging Peter's actions underwent a heart change. They went on a journey to where now at the end they're joyful and celebrating the work of God among these new people, the Gentiles. So from judging to joyful, and really our statement that we want to have guide us through this passage is how early Christians went from judging to joyful about their brothers and sisters in Christ and how we can too. The first key coming from verses 1-3 through is this. A gospel understanding. A gospel understanding. Again, look at verse 1. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So what's going on here? You know, Jesus uh, rose from the grave. He spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them and, and sort of mentoring them in how to go be his witnesses. He told them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Then Jesus ascends to heaven. The Spirit comes down in Acts 2, and they begin this sort of program of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. We saw in Acts 8, that they went to Samaria. And now, in Acts 10 last week, and in Acts 11 again today, Peter's recounting, when the gospel went to non-Jewish people, to Gentiles. It says that the news of what happened with Peter got back to Jerusalem before Peter did. You saw that in verse 1, right? The apostles and the brothers, they heard that the Gentiles had received the word. This wasn't gossip. This was like major news. This was such a profound shift in salvation in Bible history. Wait, 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 wait. The Gentiles? 
Wait, the Gentiles are believing the same exact truths and worshiping the same exact God and having the same exact church family as us now? That's right, in Christ. This was profound. The news was traveling. So it says in verse 2, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, do you see it? It says the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Okay. So here's the thing. In the very early church, the very first Christians, they were slow to accept Gentile Christians. Slow to accept the idea that Gentiles might also believe the same things and be saved, even though God had had spoken it and prophesied about it in Genesis 12 and all through the Old Testament. They were slow to accept Gentile Christians. And I believe even in this day, when Luke is writing, when he's writing the book of Acts, Christians still at that time were slow to accept Gentiles. They were skeptical of those who fellowshiped with them, like Peter is rumored to have done. So it says that some Christians from, what does it say there, verse 2? The circumcision party. It's interesting. That's the English Standard Version, the ESV, the circumcision party. The New American Standard Bible says those who were circumcised. That's kind of different, isn't it? The circumcision party. That sounds so political. The New American Standard just says those who are circumcised. The NIV says the circumcised believers. You know, uh, John Stott says the Greek phrase need only mean those who were of Jewish birth and were Christians. So that's what's going on here. These, it's not the apostles, but this is Christians in Jerusalem. And they are criticizing Peter for what he has done. You, you went and had fellowship with a Gentile? Now let's talk about this for a second. Again, the point here is a gospel understanding. Let's talk about this because this is actually a really important point. First of all, Remember that the religious leadership, they criticized Jesus. They said he was a friend of sinners. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. Remember that. Think about this. As as these Christians criticize Peter, think about the tendency in your own heart with your pride to first criticize that which is new, foreign, or different. Here's the thing. We, we look at this and we go, oh my gosh, what? This is so classic. Like, this is why I don't go to church. Like, they're getting bent out of shape about who someone ate with. But, but hold on a second. Before we judge them over their judging, let's remember this, their criticism was not that crazy, actually. And Peter does not respond by telling them, you guys are out of your minds. He doesn't do that. He responds by actually being like, I hear you guys, where you're coming from. I was there. Here's what God did in me. That's what Peter does. If you understand the history of 
God and the people of God. In Exodus 19, after God brings Israel out of Egypt, He says, you, I brought you out of Egypt on eagle's wings, and you are now going to be to me a treasured people from among all people. You're going to be a holy nation. You're going to be a set apart and unique and distinct people. That's God's plan for his people, that they would be different, unique, holy, special. And so that entailed not becoming diluted and polluted by the nations around them so that the people of God would be holy, reflecting the holiness of God to the world that God made. That was God's plan always. So there are passages in the Old Testament like Deuteronomy 7 where Israel, the people of God, is commanded, do not intermarry with the nations around you that worship false gods. Why? Because of just like an arbitrary rule about marriage? No, because that would pollute and dilute their unique and holy faithfulness to God. Leviticus 11 actually says, this is an important chapter on dietary law. It says in Leviticus 11, these are the things you may eat. And if you have time later today, just, just meditate on Leviticus chapter 11. You know, pigs, no. Cows, yes. Vultures, no. Chickens, yes. Shellfish and shrimp, no. Fish, yes. You've heard the word kosher. The word kosher is a Hebrew word, and it just means fitting or suitable. It means these things are suitable to the diet as prescribed in the Old Testament to Israel. And you might say, why? Why? Why all of this? The purpose of the food laws was to make the Israelites, that is God's people, distinct to make them distinct from all other nations. Because if you marry people and you eat with people and you eat the same things as people, you tend to become those people. And God's like, no, my plan is a holy people, a treasured people from among all people, a people that represents me in the world. I'm talking Old Testament here, but this matters because this is the upbringing of Peter, of every Jewish Christian, of Jesus. This is the world in which what's happening in Acts 11 happened. We know about Daniel. Who's heard of Daniel? Have you heard of Daniel in the Old Testament? Daniel in the lion's den, you've heard of him? Okay. Um, so Daniel, you know, like it's funny. Like We get all bent out of shape. We're like, oh, the weird food laws in Scripture. And then you're like, did you do your Daniel fast? They might do their Daniel fast. Like, Daniel fast is cool, but like Leviticus 11, uncool. Well, Daniel's fast was Leviticus 11. Like, Daniel, it says in chapter 1, verse 8, resolved that he would not, do you see it? Defile himself with the king's food. I'm, I'm pointing all this out to, to, to bring us to this point that I think is really key for going from judging to joyful, this point of gospel understanding. I, I want us to see that the people that were criticizing Peter, they weren't completely off base. They weren't weirdos. These Jewish Christians believed in Jesus, and they rightly still believed that God was holy and desired for his people, like Peter, to be holy too, and to represent him well. And they suspected Peter was not doing that. Well, 
That's, that's good. That's good. If you were there and you were a Jewish Christian, you probably would have criticized Peter. Here's the thing. What this story of what happened with Cornelius is not teaching us. Here's what it is not teaching us. It is not teaching us that the God of the Old Testament has dropped his super high and nitpicky standards, and we should too. It's not, it's not teaching that. What is it teaching? It is showing us that the gospel message that Peter brought to the Gentiles, to Cornelius, that by it they too were saved and thereby made clean. It is showing us that by placing one's faith in Jesus Christ, they are washed in the blood of Christ, made clean, and now part of the people of God that is set apart for Him and to Him. That's the truth. I want to... Again, gospel understanding. Keep driving this home. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says it this way. Such were some of you. He's talking about unclean sinners. He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here's the thing. It used to be, prior to Peter and Jesus and all this, it used to be Jews clean, other nations unclean. That's how it was. The shift is not everyone's clean now. That's not the shift. That's universalism. That's not the shift that's happening here. You say, well, what is the shift? Here it is. The big shift is that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and through a person placing their faith in Jesus Christ, friends, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is now the multi-ethnic Christian church clean by the blood of Christ. And those not in Christ, unclean. But invited to Christ. That's the truth. So consider that. Consider the profoundness of that. It's not a person's sinful past, religious or irreligious past, their family of origin, church-going or not, their country, their nation, their ethnicity, their race, their diet, their food, any cultural practices or preferences that, listen, listen, it's not those things that save them, and it's also not those things once saved that should include them in fellowship in the body of Christ. It's something else. It's something else now. Do you know what it is? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. The gospel understanding that I'm talking about is this, that Jew or Gentile, a person is saved and fully included in the church by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So Just think about that. That's what Peter is saying. He's not saying, oh, 
oh, God's dropped his standards. He no longer sees people as unclean. No, what he's saying is, no, the Gentiles have believed the gospel. The blood of Christ has now made them clean and they are now part of our family with us. That's what he's saying. So just just consider the implications of this. Sometimes we say things like at our church um, or at church in general, we say things like, you know, I really think that church... The kind of church I want to be at is a church where there's a lot of my kind of people. A lot of my kind of people. That's, that's what I'm going for. Just think about that. Think about how if that mindset were the prevailing mindset and focus of our fellowship, how much that would undermine what we're talking about here this morning. Consider our own hearts, how we have a proneness to criticize, to judge, to grumble. From judging to joyful. So the first thing, if we want to go from judging to joyful, from judging our brothers and sisters in Christ to being joyful about the work of God in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the first thing we've got to do is have a gospel understanding. Second, a discipleship example. A discipleship example, verses 4 through 17. So what Peter does as he responds to his critics, he doesn't say, you guys are crazy. What's wrong with you? Y'all are racist. Y'all are racist. Haven't you, you know, read the new stuff that's out like about anti-racism? Like, you guys are really weird. We're canceling you right now. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say that. He's like, you know what? I was right where you were like a few days ago. That's what he says. It's interesting, really, this point is about a discipleship example. That example is the example of Peter for these Jews, these Jewish Christians who were criticizing him. John Stott says, and I quote, it took four decisive hammer blows of divine revelation before Peter's racial and religious prejudice was overcome. And Peter explains these four hammer blows to the Jewish Christians to help them out. So do you see, Peter's giving an example here. Peter's being a leader to them. If you're going to be a leader to people, you can't take them where you haven't gone yourself. Peter wants to take them on the journey that God has just taken him on from prejudice to praise, from judging to joyful, from grumbling to glorifying. That's what Peter is trying to do here. So the four hammer blows are a divine vision, verse 4 through 10, a divine command, verse 11 through 12, divine preparation, verse 13 through 14, and divine action, verse 15 through 17. So I just want to read these verses real quick together and just quickly go through them. So again, the point here is a discipleship example. Peter's saying, listen, guys, here's what actually happened. Look at verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. He's like, listen, I'm going to break it down for you in order. He says in verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying. Okay, He's like, this started with me praying. Okay, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision. Something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. 
and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So, so his critics, the people criticizing him were thinking, yep, yeah, we thought this is what happened, Peter. And you went, mm, okay, let's go, let's go. Let's go and make myself unclean right this moment. Let's go. No, no, no. What did Peter do? Look at verse 8. Peter's like, oh, no, guys. I was, I'm right there with you. You're criticizing me? Listen, I criticized this too. Look at verse 8. I said, by no means, Lord. This is what Peter said to Jesus. No, by no means. By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. You see what Peter's doing here? He's telling them what happened because it truly happened. We saw it in chapter 10 last week. But he's also telling them, listen, you're criticizing me for going and, and entering a Gentile's home and having fellowship with him, and I get it. I didn't want to do it. I was critical of the plan too. And Jesus had to knock me on the head with a vision three straight times to get me to cooperate. I get it. And then there's a divine command, verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says, and behold, at that very moment, do you see the word? Behold. It's like the, the point of the word behold is like coincidentally, like providential timing, behold, a divine appointment, behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. Verse 12, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. So again, these hammer blows. Now, at first it was a divine vision. Now it's a divine command. The Spirit said, Peter, go. And do not make a distinction between you and these people. He's like, oh my gosh, okay. Look at what happens next. It says, you see, look at verse 12, halfway through. It says, these six brothers also accompanied me. Wait a second. Peter's in Jerusalem right now. P Peter's in Jerusalem, and he's like, these six brothers accompanied me. In other words, when Peter was in Joppa and he had to go to Caesarea, he was like, you guys are coming with me. One, two, three, four, five, six. All six of you, you're coming with me. Because I know what I've been asked to do, I need a witness. Actually, two, three, four, six witnesses. You guys are all coming with me. And now when Peter's in Jerusalem, he's like, hey guys, you're coming with me again. We're going to go down to Jerusalem. That's why he's able to say in verse 12, these six brothers, so you can see Peter here, he's pointing to them, these six guys, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. So you're not criticizing me, Peter's saying. You're criticizing all six of us. We did it in plurality. We did this together. They were there in a Roman court. It took seven witnesses to seal and ratify an important document. Peter is being strategic and wise. He brings these six men with him. <laughs> in verse 13, so they get there. They get to Cornelius' house. This is, again, Peter retelling the story. And he told us, so Cornelius told them how he had seen the angel in his house. 
And the angel told him, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Okay. So what Peter is saying to them, he's like, listen, guys, I got, I got to Cornelius' house and he knew my name and he knew the name that people actually call me. And he knew what house I was staying at in Joppa. Somehow, God had revealed a vision through an angel to him. Again, the point that's being made here is Peter saying, listen, I didn't just go do this. God did this. God did this. And, and, and then, and this is the biggest point of all, verse 15, as I began, oh, verse 14. So, so the angel told Cornelius that Peter will declare to you, watch this, you see it, verse 14, a message by which you will be saved. What message is that? That's the gospel message. Verse 15, as I began to speak, this is Peter, he's like, as I began to speak the message, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. Like, it's like, listen, you guys remember in, in Acts 2, in the upper room, when we were waiting for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit fell on us? He's like, listen, listen, listen. As I shared the gospel with a room full of what we formerly viewed as unclean Gentiles, they believed the gospel and the Spirit fell on them. And they, just as he fell on us, So Peter's like, listen, I was with you guys. I was there. Prejudice. But God took me on a journey to where I'm like praising him. I was there. I was critical. I was judgmental. I was grumbling. But God took me, Peter speaking, on a journey. And he's recounting it for them so that they can join him on the journey. You see? So, so again, then he says in verse 16, and then Peter's like, and then I remembered. The word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he's grounding it in Scripture. Then verse 17, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Watch this. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? A discipleship example. Peter's a follower of Jesus. Peter's an imperfect Christian, an imperfect disciple follower of Jesus, who in chapter 10 went from judging to joyful. And now he's trying to help these Jewish Christians, critical of him, go from judging to joyful too. That's really what we need, isn't it? We need an example, a discipleship example. Sometimes we need to see it. The Christian life often is more caught than taught. If these Jewish Christians are going to go from judging to joyful, they need to see how it happened for Peter. And so the key is Peter's example. 
when it comes to working out the amazing truths of the Christian life in our real lives, we don't just need the Bible and just need Jesus. We also need examples. These men had Peter. Timothy had Paul. The Philippians had Timothy and Epaphroditus. Who do you have as a discipleship example? Lord willing, someone like Peter who is yielded to the Holy Spirit and on a journey growing in Christlikeness. To whom are you being a discipleship example? Spiritual leadership and discipleship is not being a perfect Christian, okay? It's just being a growing Christian who's yielded to God's word and authority in your life and being willing to take initiative and share your journey with other disciples that they might too grow. From judging to joyful, a gospel understanding and now a discipleship example. And now last, a real God. A real God. Look at verse 17 and 18. So again, verse 17, If then God gave the same gift to them, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. F.F. Bruce, a scholar on the New Testament, says this, their criticism ceased and their worship began. Note how Luke says they, in verse 18, they fell silent. At the very least, don't you think we should let this passage challenge us this morning to use our mouths more for praise at what God is doing and less for criticism of our brothers and sisters in Christ? But that's not even the point here. The point, the point that I want to share, the key to going from judging to joyful that we see in verses 17 through 18 is a real God. Think about it. Peter says in verse 17, hey, 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 listen, listen. Peter says, who am I to stand in God's way? He's like, here's what happened, guys. Here, here's what happened, my religious brothers and sisters, here's what happened. God really showed up. Man-made religion always leads to judging, never leads to joyful. When we know that we're not God, but that there is a real God who, by the life death, burial, and resurrection of His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, has made an opportunity for us to be in fellowship with Him. Like when we know that there's a real God who has graciously rescued us from our sin, we can be joyful. It seems really simple to say this as we're talking about going from grumbling to glorifying, from critical to celebrating, from judging to joyful. It seems really simple, but I actually think it's important. Do you functionally have a real God? 
who can disagree with you? Who can confront you in your prejudice and say, no, it's going to be this way, not that way. I'll read, I'm going to read part of a quote that will not be on the screen, and then I'm going to share a quote. This is from a pastor and author, Tim Keller, who I often share things from. What happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship or genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle will you know that you've gotten a hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So, and the quote I want to share with you is this. If your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Keys to going from judging to joyful. A gospel understanding. A discipleship example, Peter's example. A real God. A real God. Let's pray and and then we're going to celebrate communion, come to the Lord's table this morning.